the word of God from Daniel 7, 1 through 14. Daniel has a vision about the kingdoms of the earth and the kingdom of God. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here's the summary of his account. Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between the teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, I was watching. Suddenly, another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night visions, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it and had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and the three of the first horns were uprooted before it, and suddenly in its horn were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thorns were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like the whitest wool, his throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. The river of the fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court convened and the books were opened. I watched then because the sound of the arrogant words of the horns was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night's visions, and suddenly one, like the Son of Man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is the one that will not be destroyed. The word of, the, of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you this morning. We are in our series on the Lord's Prayer, so you may be wondering why Daniel chapter 7 was read, why Rachel read that for us. It's because we've come to the next petition in the Lord's Prayer, which is, Your kingdom come. In what we just heard, 
there were multiple very graphic images given of beasts rising and falling and dominion being granted and taken away until the Son of Man appears. And he's given a kingdom and dominion and power and authority that will last for forever. There's much hope found in the end there of Daniel chapter 7. Quite a contrast to what our state has been through the last two weeks, right? Like many of you, I was angry, frustrated, and heartbroken as I read the accounts of Tyree Nichols, his arrest, his beating, and his subsequent death at the hand of multiple police officers in Memphis, Tennessee. And the judicial process is underway, but the facts as they have been established so far are nauseating, to say the very least. When those tasked with governing or with enforcing order, when they betray their calling, it is natural for us to feel off balance, confused, angry, perhaps more so than when we hear of a common crook being a crook. Why is that? Well, the answer to that question goes back to the Garden of Eden. You see, each of us has royal blood in our veins, believe it or not. Our remotest ancestor, Adam, was installed as a vice-regent, a co-ruler of the earth, tasked with ruling the earth along with God as creator. The task of governing is part of our shared family history as human beings. And so we can't help but be intrigued by good governing and devastated when those in places of power abuse their power. So it's in the providence of God that as we gather this morning, we gather to consider this second petition of the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6, which says, your kingdom come. But in light of the American story of independence from a monarchy, and alongside confusion regarding whether or not America is actually a Christian nation, and with the rise of Christian nationalism in the last decade or so of American life, some are genuinely confused and or uncomfortable with the attachment of kingdom to any connection to Christianity. So we have some work to do this morning if we're going to understand what it is our Lord and Savior asks us to pray in this, his prayer. As of Friday, I actually had a full sermon ready to go on this petition, and I plan to make the content of that sermon available to you in some form, probably via email because I think it will be genuinely helpful to you as you read your Bible and find your place in the story in which God is writing. But as I considered this text over the last 48 hours, I was struck 
by three words that help to define this petition. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is our outline. This petition is first a declaration. Second, it's a renunciation. And third, it's anticipation. First, the petition your kingdom come is a declaration. It's a declaration of allegiance, of loyalty to someone other than ourselves. This prayer is addressed to our Father in heaven, and it is his kingdom that we're praying would come, not ours. Psalm 103:19 says, "The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all." And in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we read, "Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. God is the king of the universe, and the kingdom of God encompasses everything that exists, both seen and unseen. And the one God who is three, Father, Son, and Spirit, he is the supreme monarch of this kingdom. But if God is who the Bible declares him to be, full of righteousness, full of grace, full of mercy and goodness, then why is his created world, his kingdom, full of unrighteousness, violence, injustice, and evil? It's a difficult, uncomfortable question, but an appropriate one. And see, the question demonstrates that even though the entire created order is under the kingship of God, God's kingdom, in some sense, we are not yet experiencing the kingdom of God as he designed us to experience. After all, what is the request? Your kingdom come. A Bible scholar named Graham Goldsworthy wrote a book titled The Gospel and Kingdom. And this morning we're going to stand on his shoulders in order to understand the idea of kingdom in the scriptures. And a good place to start in our understanding of the kingdom in the Bible is, well, the beginning. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And in those chapters, we discover a kingdom pattern. There's a pattern of the kingdom of God. God has just created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and they are to have, and they are little image bearers, rather, to subdue, to rule, to have dominion over the beautiful world that God has created reflecting God's generosity and his goodness to the created order. And he establishes for them a special place, the Garden of Eden. It was a type of temple where God would walk with them and where they would serve and worship God in perpetuity 
under his rulership. And God's kingship was expressed in simple instructions. Be fruitful, multiply, exercise dominion, eat whatever you find on any tree except one. So what is the pattern of the kingdom of God? God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule. The pattern of the kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule, but we don't live in the Garden of Eden. So what happened? Well, the story doesn't end there. God's people rebelled. Adam and Eve grasped for autonomy and authority that was not theirs to reach for. And so God barred them from the place he had created for them. And mankind has ever since then been living east of the Garden of Eden, as one book puts it. We've lived outside of Eden, outside of the kingdom of God. And humanity ever since has been trying to recreate Eden or replace Eden. Trying to build our own kingdoms and living in our own autonomy. Just look at the world around us. Look at our city. Some build their own kingdoms through platforms or through workaholism or through manipulation or deceit. Others of us are so self-centered that we expect others to treat us like kings and queens. And so we get really, really angry when someone else expects us to treat them like a king or a queen. Some express their self-sovereignty through unbounded sexual freedom. And when the kingdom of self, when this kingdom building comes crashing down, there are other rulers that are ready to step in place. Rulers that promise the fulfillment of Eden and instead offer only the curse of slavery. Rulers like drugs. Rulers like greed. Rulers like alcoholism and pornography. You see, mankind is longing to get back into utopia. And we are moving further and further towards dystopia. So when you look at the world as it is, in all its brokenness and suffering, friend, don't blame God. Place the blame where it properly belongs. Us. You and me. Mankind. Because let's be honest, you and I each this week have tried to replace the kingdom of God with our own little kingdoms in a thousand different ways. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we are making a declaration, not of independence, but of dependence 
we are declaring that our allegiance to God has been restored, that we recognize his rightful place to rule in this world with absolute sovereignty, no checks or balances needed. You see, this petition is not merely a declaration, but secondly, it is also a renunciation. We who were rebels against God's kingship, who willingly and recklessly follow Adam and Eve into autonomy and self-sovereignty every single day, when we pray your kingdom come, we are renouncing any and all claims to the throne of our lives. Your kingdom come is a petition in which we lay down our arms of rebellion and warfare against God. This is not hopeless fatalism. Whatever will be, will be God. No, this is intentional faith. Your kingdom come is the heart cry of a child of God saying, I don't want to fight any longer and I don't want to rule. God, that's your place, not mine. You're the king. I'm not. So your kingdom come, this petition is not intended to be a trivial sentimentality. It is an unconditional surrender to the kingship of Jesus. It is a renunciation of self-sovereignty. Now, we saw the pattern kingdom, the kingdom of, uh, rather, the pattern of the kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2. And after Adam and Eve rebelled against God's kingship, God promised that one of Eve's seeds, one of her descendants, would crush their enemy, the serpent who had deceived them. And this seed would restore what was broken. So this pattern of Genesis 1, the pattern of God's people in God's place under God's rule, is what we are longing for as humanity ever since the Garden of Eden. But this longing has been so diluted in mankind separated from God that it's become this question. How do we fix what's wrong and reach utopia? But the question is the wrong starting place for three reasons. First, we can't even agree on what's wrong. Ask 10 different people in our city what is the root problem of mankind and you may get 15 different answers. Second, we made the root problem. So how are we going to fix it? We entered into this rebellion under God. How are we going to fix our own rebellion? And third, the kingdom of God is out of reach for anyone who is still in rebellion against God. So all who come willingly are welcomed into God's kingdom, but those who shake their fist at God want the kingdom without the king. They want the kingdom benefits without the kingdom way of living. Those who flaunt God's laws don't want him. They want some idea of freedom outside 
of the kingdom. And ever since the garden, even as other iterations of the kingdom of God has appeared that we'll talk about in just a few moments, the problem has always been the same. The king is willing. The kingdom is available. Living under God's kingship is possible, but the subjects are unwilling. We will not have it. We have a heart problem that makes us unfit subjects, unwilling subjects, unable to be subject to the king. So how does this problem play out in Scripture? Well, to Abraham, God gives a promise of the kingdom based after the pattern of Eden. God would create an entire nation through Abraham. That's God's people. And God would give them a place, the promised land, the nation of Israel, Canaan, to call their own. And they would be under God's rule, under God's authority. They'd become the means by which God would mediate his rule to the rest of the nations. So after you read of that in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 and Genesis 22, we fast forward centuries and God fulfills this incredible promise to a solitary man whose descendants are now numbering in the millions, but who are enslaved to Egypt. That redemptive story found in the book of Exodus is the climax of the Old Testament in many ways as God brings his people out of bondage and brings them to his place under his rule. But in the following years, Abraham's descendants refuse to renounce their own authority and independence. They want a say in how God's kingdom ought to be run. So we fast forward again, and Israel, the nation, God's people, are in God's place. The land promised to Abraham, but they're continuing to rebel against God's rule. And so God gives them a human king to mediate his rule. And it's in the, the kingship of David and Solomon that the kingdom of God is foreshadowed. We see the pattern in Eden and the promise to Abraham and now a foreshadowing in 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. God's people, the 12 tribes, in God's place, the land of Israel, under God's chosen head, King David and his son, King Solomon. And the kingdom flourishes, but not for long. Within two generations, that kingdom is divided, north and south, Israel and Judah. Israel has only bad kings from that point on until they are taken into exile. Judah has some good kings and mostly bad kings, and they last a little bit longer. But they still rebel against God, and so he sends them into exile. I said we were going to stand on Graham Goldsworthy's shoulders, and we've done so as we've walked through here. Let me read this quote. It's up on the screen. The historical process from Abraham to Solomon, King David's son, 
always fall short of God's true kingdom, even though it reveals the nature of that kingdom, God's people under, or in God's place under God's rule. And in the face of judgment upon Israel's sin, climaxing in the destruction of a nation, the prophets restate the promise of the kingdom as something that will be fulfilled in the future. So we've gone from the historical books into the prophets. And as we end the Old Testament and we come to the final verse, it's filled with hope, it's filled with longing, and it's filled with judgment, all three. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The promise of one like Elijah to change hearts. And then 400 years of silence. Nothing. No revelation from God. Nothing but the prophets to look back on. And then Matthew begins his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the promised prophet able to change hearts. Matthew is connecting Jesus Christ to David's line. He's a Davidic king. And he's also connecting Jesus to Abraham. So what is Jesus' message as he begins his ministry on earth? He flipped just a few pages ahead to Matthew 4. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. What is God doing? He's beginning to recreate his people. He brings together Israelites and non-Israelites, former enemies and oppressors with the oppressed. He brings together tax collectors who worked with Rome and zealots who plotted against Rome. He brings men and women, small and great. He brings them into a community, and he begins to change lives from the inside out. Jesus begins to build a community in which his rule and his reign is acknowledged as supreme. What's happening? Jesus is creating a new people under his rule and gathered together in one place, the temple that he is building to his father, a living temple called the church. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we understand that this is a declaration of allegiance to God. It's a renunciation of our own authority to govern our lives, a renunciation of self-sovereignty. And finally, it is anticipation. 
You see, the pictures of God's kingdom throughout Scripture are incomplete because something is missing. God's people are not completely God's people because our hearts are not completely His. And we've demonstrated that this week, haven't we? And God's place is not completely God's place because it's not yet emptied of things that are against God. Just look at our culture. And God's rule is not completely God's rule because Satan still has some dominion. After all, he is called the God of this world. But not forever. We who follow Jesus are already within the kingdom of God, but the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. The kingdom of God is already but not yet. Rachel read Daniel 7 for us earlier. Later this year, we're actually going to work through the book of Daniel in our Sunday morning gatherings together. But for now, let's just remind ourselves of a couple of verses. Daniel, in his visions, continued watching, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Friend, there's coming a day that the salvation of God that he has worked for his people will reach as far as the curse is found. When that day comes, when the salvation of God encompasses all of God's creation, when his son, our king, is triumphant, then God's people will be perfectly under God's rule in God's place, and the kingdom will have come. This is a prayer of anticipation. God, your kingdom come. But as we anticipate that day, how is it that you and I can experience God's kingdom on earth right now? What precisely are we praying for when we say, your kingdom come? Well, there are many ways we could say this, but let's just start here. We are praying for, first, the gospel's advance on earth. We're praying that men and women would give their allegiance to Jesus by grace through faith in his finished work for them on the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're praying that more and more people would renounce their self-sovereignty and bow to King Jesus. We're praying that people would be changed by the gospel to announce their allegiance to King Jesus. And we pray that God would use Sojourn Community Church and the members and attenders of Sojourn to proclaim the gospel in such a way in the city of Chattanooga 
that men and women are compelled into the kingdom of God. And friend, this means if you are here with us and you're just exploring Christianity, and if you are not yet a part of God's kingdom, we would welcome you to join us. If this describes you, we'd love to talk with you. Perhaps speak with someone that you met during the passing the peace time or come speak with me or one of the other elders of Sojourn and we would love to talk with you about how to enter the kingdom of God. So we're praying for the gospel's advance, but second, we're praying for the gospel's effects to increase. We want the effects of the gospel to increase individually. We pray for Jesus' kingdom to come by praying that we would grow in faith, in repentance, in love, in holiness, in gentleness, in goodness. So, follower of Jesus, let me ask you a question related to this. Do you take the words of Jesus and the words of Scripture seriously? The freedom that you and I have been called to in Jesus is genuine freedom. It's not the shallow freedom of expressive individualism or self-determined identity. That's not freedom. That's slavery. And the freedom we've been called into is the freedom of serving Jesus, the great King. Do you know what he said? Do we care 